0: Welcome back to Riot Underground. You found the place where instigators are changing the world with disruptive technology. I'm Sarah Glova, and in today's episode, we are joined by none other than Bill Schreier. I'll warn you, Bill is a bit of a legend. From his work as a CIO for a major police department, CTO for major cities, his work with the state of Washington, his past roles as a cop and as an army officer, all the way up to Bill's current work with the FirstNet Federal Agency, this man speaks all over the country, and he's really well known for providing direct answers and a collaborative approach. Even more than that, he's just a genuinely nice guy with lots of great stories. So be prepared to learn a lot. And also to be inspired by Bill and Bill's view on partnership, technology, and what's next for public safety in the U.S. Let's jump in. So Bill, one of the first questions we always ask on the podcast is if there was a celebrity to play you in a movie, could you share with us who that would be? It'll give our listeners a chance to picture who's, who's speaking with us.
1: Patrick Stewart.
0: Oh, good. I in his love role that. <laughs> as
1: Jean-Luc Picard uh, in Star Trek Next yes. Generation.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. Perfect answer. And I'm so glad that you said that, because now I can picture that we're in Star Trek for the rest of the episode. <laughs> so I was doing some research about you and your role, and it's really hard to summarize. How do you introduce yourself to people? You have such an interesting role and a really impressive background. What's your elevator speech?
1: Well, my background, I've been with the First Net Authority, the federal agency, since 2016. Prior to that, I was served as a chief information officer for the Seattle Police Department, and I also served I chaired a state interoperability committee for the state of Washington. And my main role from 2003 to 2012, I was the chief information officer or or chief technology officer was a title for the city of Seattle. So I managed the technology department that supported 11,000 employees and 700,000 people uh, for city government there. My current role with the FirstNet Authority is a great one. I get to work with uh, companies who are startups or have mature technology that they presently provide to first responders, and I I get to work with new companies that are bringing new ideas and new innovations to first responders, and I also get to to work with fire chiefs, police chiefs, uh, city and county managers, um, medics, 911 centers understand what their needs are and try to marry the technology to the needs of first responders.
0: It did strike me that you were going to come in and speak in Riot Labs. We we say often we're a convening organization. We're a convener. And you, sir, are a convener. I mean, <laughs> you're all over the place. I see that you speak um, all the time. So I, I hear about FirstNet a lot because of the community that I'm in. But if someone's listening to the podcast and hasn't heard of FirstNet, or maybe they haven't heard about it in a while or don't know what's going on, how do you summarize You know what that is and And what that initiative is trying to do.
1: FirstNet is a nationwide network built by AT&T, cellular network, with priority for first responders. And sometimes I call it smartphones and tablet computers for cops, firefighters and medics. It's about a cellular network where first responders have priority, even during a disaster, even during a major event, whether it be a, a, a concert or a Seahawks Victory Parade. When the cell (laughs) networks are overloaded, your first responders still have priority. They still have a smartphone that works.
0: Great. And there's a .gov, there's a .com. Can you talk a little bit about that difference quickly?
1: FirstNet.gov is the federal agency which has the overall responsibility from Congress to deploy the FirstNet network. AT&T won an RFP to actually deploy the network nationwide And they have FirstNet.com that talks about the specific services and devices and apps that are available on the FirstNet network.
0: Right. And then maybe the most important question of the podcast, since you're a Seahawks fan, you do give us credit, right? I mean, you're in Raleigh. I just want to make sure when you think of Russell Wilson, you still think of of Wolfpack Nation sometimes.
1: (laughs) I do. Okay, good,
0: good. As long as we've cleared that up.
1: <laughs> okay, great. Thank you for the reminder uh, You're welcome <laughs> on, a more,
0: on a more serious note Clearly a service that supports first responders Affects all of us All of those who rely on first responders That's all of us But for those of us who aren't first responders ourselves Or, or for those who don't have a direct connection To that space So for our general audience What's it like out there right now Like, How, how do you contextualize this first net discussion For the general public
1: There are 320 million people in the United States, uh, residents in the United States. Certainly, we face a lot of issues. Um, We face crime. We face terrorism, both domestic and foreign. We face a whole number of disasters, hurricanes, earthquakes, wildfires uh, in the West the Midwest, floods. There are so many disasters that we face. We have 5 million first responders uh, in the United States, including volunteers and and career first responders. But those 320 million people are really on the front line of public safety. They need to help their first responders. They need to have three days to seven days of food so that they can survive on their own after a hurricane or earthquake. They need to understand what a first responder does and how they can keep themselves and their communities safe. So I, I think that Public safety is not just a job for cops and firefighters and medics and telecommunicators who answer 911 calls. Mm. It's a job for everybody who lives in the United States.
0: That's an interesting call to action. I like seeing myself as part of that. We are based in Raleigh, and so we see hurricanes a lot. I mean, we see natural disasters in this area. And being in an urban setting, you do see Crime, I mean, I feel very safe and very lucky to live in Raleigh, but you do see crime. And so thinking about, you know, how am I doing a good job of being prepared and being in the conversation about public safety? Because I'm a part of that.
1: Another thing that Riot is doing and you're doing in your job is you're enabling entrepreneurs, citizen entrepreneurs and developers to actually develop apps which will improve the quality of life as well as the safety of not just first responders, but the public as a whole. So thank you and Riot for that.
0: <laughs> it's such an interesting time. It, you know, 2019 is a great time to be alive. I've said that a lot this year. As I see the startups that come into the Riot Accelerator program that have these ideas, that we can have someone like you with your background and your expertise and your role into our lab space and let these startups talk to you about their ideas that they have for apps that have some connection to public safety or citizen services. And the fact that people can have... Have these ideas and build them and get in touch with the right people and try them out. I mean, we're we're in a really interesting collaborative time.
1: And you, Riot, are right in the center of it. Thank you.
0: <laughs> well, on, on that note about Riot, we also have Riot's executive director, Tom Snyder, here. And so far, I've monopolized all of your time, Bill. So, uh, Tom, you and I have talked a lot about FirstNet. Uh, Bill's done a great job already in this interview of describing FirstNet as a network that promises public safety responders, especially first responders, priority in that network over, say, the, the rest of us. So, Tom, now that we have a definition of FirstNet as a network to provide priority to first responders, what is your first question for Bill?
2: So you mentioned priority, and priority and preemption are, are fundamental to FirstNet and really, really important. What is kind of the viewpoint beyond the first responder and their radio themselves to giving priority to other kinds of IOT data that might be really important to situational awareness in a, in a specific situation, maybe local video feeds or other kinds of things.
1: I will admit we haven't completely thought this through. And that's again, why we need more input from first responders and incident commanders who are actually on the ground. Take for example, a situation where in Seattle, we seem to have a May Day riot every year. Uh, anarchists seem to march. And that requires the deployment of 500 police officers downtown, each of whom has a body-worn video camera. There are video surveillance cameras. Takes up a lot of bandwidth. Could even overload uh, a first net network. How do you decide who gets priority on that? And we need tools, things like geofencing. So if there's a, an issue at a particular intersection, you can have a map on a computer screen and draw a line around that particular intersection and give priority to the devices in that mm-hmm. intersection, the body worn video or the video surveillance camera. Uh, voice always needs priority, whether it be with a cell phone or a radio. So I think we need tools like the geofencing. We need tools that can, uh, on body-worn video again, rather than streaming the full live stream of a body-worn video, maybe stream one frame per second. And then when an incident actually occurs, video analytics detects that the incident has occurred and then increases the priority of that body-worn video or that video surveillance camera. Lots of interesting potential applications for video analytics, artificial intelligence, object recognition, and video.
2: Absolutely. So let me ask... um, when you talk about – a moment ago you talked about systems and how it can be interesting to bring other systems of information in together. And, and we talk a lot at Wright Labs about the power of systems of systems and bringing more and more data together. And a, a couple of years ago, we actually got involved in spearheading a project that, that got some traction and unfortunately didn't get all the way through. But we had this vision. We were working with some corporate collaborators that had developed – a device that can do biometric measurements in the ear, in the earbud, and uh, do pretty accurate things, your you know, tympanic temperature and, and your heart rate and, and various things. And, and we recognize uh, through working with first responders that uh, the leading cause of death for firefighters is cardiac arrest, uh, many times due to stress-related situations and things that might be preventable if you have that biometric information. And so we worked with one organization that looked at bringing broadband, like a kind of Internet in a box, on the rescue vehicle. Bring high fidelity broadband out to a site, have biometrics in in the earpieces of of these firefighters that are already there, but then being able to tie that back to you know medical systems, tie that back if there's an emergency to turning like you know all the lights green all the way to the hospital, you know like the system of system integration and there were a number of folks that were interested in that project, but it was difficult to find like the single customer for all of these things. Can you talk a little bit about if this is even in your area? where you see not like public-private partnership, but like public-private-private-private-private partnership, you know, when corralling these different things together.
1: Wow, that's a great uh, question, Tom. And I think you're spot on in terms of the private-private partnerships. Getting there are a number of innovative companies out there, developers, and getting them to talk to each other um, to actually make two independent apps work together fairly well. And I'll give you a, a specific example I was talking here at Riot a little bit earlier today to a company that makes an interior gunshot detection. So it's got acoustic sensors inside a building, a concert hall, for example, or an entertainment venue that that, uh, listens for noises that are more than 10 decibels above the, the average and then analyzes those to see if they're gunshots. But how does that company's data get back to an alarm center or a public safety answering point? Well, there's another company in New York that actually collects data from IoT devices, um, whether they be in cars or vehicles or or maybe in homes, and then displays that data on a screen in a PSAP, in a public safety answering point. So there's a perfect example of those two companies can get together and collaborate. The data from the IoT can go to an existing um, 911 center and display on an existing screen there's lots of potential for collaboration that way between uh, companies. In fact, that's part of my job is to try and uh, engender companies to work together in that fashion.
2: Yeah, I think it's fantastic. And I think it really is part of the the kind of role and, and service that the government side of FirstNet has. Additionally, I'll note, you know, we have this great portal for approved apps on the, on the FirstNet uh, site as well. So as companies come up with cool projects, they have the ability to certify those and, and get them kind of approved for use on, um, on the FirstNet service. And that can also be a place for companies to meet each other. They don't maybe have to just reach out to you, Bill, although they're welcome to. Right? <laughs>
1: well, and that's also advantage of conferences, uh, uh, whether they be IoT conferences or public safety conferences where the vendors do the displays. They actually walk around and look at their own booths and, and other booths in the uh, conference.
0: So with the app place, it makes sense that there would be a specific space for apps that are going to be usable by first responders, because I imagine they can't go and download any app that they're going to use in this line of work.
1: It kind of depends. That's a good question. Most of the larger departments have some sort of a management system for their smartphones or their mobile devices that prevent the downloading of just any app. But many public safety agencies don't, or or first responders use their personal devices. So you do need some sort of place where apps are curated, and that's Mm -hmm. the FirstNet app catalog. The apps that go into that catalog are curated. They're reviewed for things like relevancy and availability and reliability, but most importantly, security. So the actual code of the app is reviewed by third-party security scans, and the output is looked at by not just the developer, but by AT&T and the FirstNet authority. And also we look at the app for is it sending data to some third party someplace. I think there was a flashlight app a few years ago that was sending data to multiple locations overseas. We review apps for that, too. So if they're in the FirstNet app catalog, you know that it's gone through that sort of testing.
0: Well, that sounds like an important resource that we need. If there are potentially first responders using personal devices, I would understand if they wanted different apps on their phone. But then if that device is also being used when they're providing emergency services, certainly that seems like something we should be concerned about, should be talking about. And so yeah,
1: there's thing. actually a, w- a website, firstnet.com, that talks about the developer portal, the developer ecosystem, and the app catalog.
2: We see the same challenge in the enterprise space. You know, many mm-hmm. companies would like their employees to use certain applications or certain tools, uh, and their employees are using their own private devices. And And at the end of the day, uh, human behavior is to follow what works, right? And so right. We, we want these apps to be reviewed. We want to have high security Uh, But if somebody develops something that works really, really well, they're going to use it, right? So there's always going to be some tension there, I think.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, especially, again, in public safety where you see a lot of volunteer firefighters, a lot of volunteer medics, um, even reserve police officers are using their personal devices. How
0: different is it as you go from community to community, what tech they use, um, what regulations they have? I mean, are these centers pretty similar as you go from community to community? Are they all different? Are, Are they interoperable is such a good tech word right now?
1: They are not. So there are quite a few differences, clearly state to state because state laws vary, but also community to community. We think that there are 60,000 or more public safety agencies nationwide, and certainly there are more than 6,000 911 centers. We call them public safety answering points or PSAPs. And, And the capabilities vary pretty significantly from one to another. Uh, so, so that sort of level setting is uh, important, and I'll give a specific example. We are seeing most leading agencies now issuing smartphones, agency, smartphones, to individual police officers. But there's still many a- agencies or many communities that can't afford that, and they certainly cannot afford it for fire and rescue uh, at this point. But I think it's pretty important that agencies, cities, mayors, communities think about issuing those agency devices to individual police officers, especially, so that the data that's collected is owned by the agency, is owned by the community, and can be managed by that community, as opposed to left on a police officer's personal device. That's a um, a potential problem for the police officer, too, who might lose that personal device if it's subpoenaed in court.
2: And it also, I think, is a big step towards handling uh, just privacy concerns in general, right? It it creates a clear delineation of what's the work and what's your personal life and and so on. And uh, Particularly as we get into more voice, as you discussed earlier, I do believe that voice interfaces and things are going to become more and more predominant. But then that question of when is that uh, active? Is it recording all of my voice? Is it only some of that? Uh, That is going to be important as we think about what is the device that's doing in that and is it a personal device or not?
1: Precisely. And we see some real advances in efficiency here too. So a police officer oftentimes takes statements of victims and witnesses. If you've got an iPad or an iPhone or an Android phone, you can do that with video. Mm -hmm. With speech to text, you can actually be much more accurate in in that fashion. Um, And that's more efficient than writing things down in a, like I did when I was a cop, a a wire-bound notebook and then translating (laughs) it into a report. But again, you want to have that sort of evidence collection on a uh, agency owned device.
0: And yeah. I can imagine how that would also be helpful with emergency services related to healthcare as you're talking to patients and things like that.
1: Oh yeah, exactly. Because the best source of patient history is talking to the patient if they're conscious. Mm-hmm. Or talking to the the family members if they're around.
2: We, we we had another guest on the show recently that talked about the simple efficiency of being able to to have laptops now mounted in the cars that, that officers could write the reports at a scene and not have the transit time back to the station to write a report and then go back out. And that kept people out in the field. This isn't even more of a step towards efficiency. If all of that can kind of be automated and transcribed, folks can continue to actively do their job and spend less of their time doing the administrative aspects, which I think is a side benefit.
1: Yeah, we've seen uh, body-worn video for police officers has really come to the fore recently. Um, part of it is protecting both officers and citizens. But we've seen police officers walk around crime scenes or accident scenes and then narrate or dictate to their body-worn video what they're seeing. Again, a great evidence collection tool.
0: Sure, that makes a lot of sense.
2: Let me ask, so another aspect of, of efficiency maybe, uh, but a different topic. Is there a kind of a secondary economic benefit of FirstNet in that it uh, it brought Band 14, it brought broadband out into areas that maybe didn't have that at all. And when you don't have a priority and preemption kind of a situation where we need to lock this down for the first responders, there's an opportunity for, for enterprise and personal use of this spectrum that, that just wasn't in some of these communities.
1: Boy, that is a great point, um, because the FirstNet spectrum, the band 14, we call it, 20 megahertz that it has been allocated to FirstNet is now used by AT&T. When that's not being used by first responders, it is available to consumers, to citizens, to businesses, especially in rural areas. We're expecting AT&T to add 500 or more cell sites, most of them in places that aren't covered, like rural areas, that, that will expand coverage. Uh, and of course, cell sites oftentimes have fiber optic cable to them that fiber optic cable has much more capacity than just a cellular network. It also could provide broadband, wired broadband to those communities. Yeah, it's
2: fantastic.
0: So on that note about rural areas, uh, we've we've heard a ton of stories from our partners and our community about the rural-urban divide, uh, the divide for connectivity, for resources, for citizen services, Bill, what's, what's your perspective on that? I mean, you've been involved with such large cities uh, in, in your professional life. Do you, do you have stories or examples that help to illustrate the importance of this rural-urban divide conversation?
1: About six years ago, I worked for the city of Seattle. I was the chief information officer, and I was a bicycle commuter. And I was riding my bicycle home, went over the handlebars, shattered my elbow into 14 pieces. Ugh. Compound fracture, bone sticking out. I tell you, well, first of all, I called my wife. And secondly, she said, have you called 911? So I called Um, 911. Seattle Fire Department, Engine 36, was just a few, a couple miles away and quickly got to the scene, put me back together and put me on an ambulance where I was transported to a level one trauma center for eight hours of surgery the next day. So I was lucky. I lived in Seattle. I lived in a major city with a fire station and trained paramedics just a, a mile away. But how about if I had been in a rural area, an hour away from a trauma center, maybe only five minutes or 10 minutes away from a volunteer fire department, but I'd have to be transported an hour with a compound fracture, losing blood. We need networks like FirstNet. We need that two-way video communication with ERs. We need to be able to transmit data about my health history and receive that data, um, maybe air to ground with with a medic transport. I just was lucky in that particular case that I lived in an urban area. But when I think about if I had been uh, on my bicycle in the Olympic Mountains, the outcome could have been entirely different. And
0: I love that you're saying we. We need this as in all the communities, not just these urban centers that are investing in tech and investing in smart cities. This needs to be something that we're seeing across the country. And so as we talk about the differences, as you mentioned, if this accident had happened somewhere else, the outcome could have been very different. And we see that. And so thinking about this could be a technology that's helping to level the playing field, for both rural and urban communities to have access to the resources they need in emergencies.
2: Exactly. It's exciting, too, to see other areas of technology that are beginning to be applied to emergency response. We work quite a bit with Wilson, North Carolina, that's been doing interesting things with drones, for example. And- that idea of being in that on, on that mountain road and, and it's a windy path and it's a long trip by a car for an ambulance or something, but a drone could fly a first aid kit or get something much more quickly. There, there are amazing innovations that are happening that can kind of leverage on top of this communications safety layer that we're putting in place.
1: Exactly. The whole idea of drones or unmanned aerial systems is really exciting uh, when, when you consider search and rescue. We've seen drones, for example, in Australia actually dropping life preservers to people who are caught in the surf. In my own area, in the Seattle area, we've got mountains where people ski in the winter and they hike in the summer and they get lost and the weather suddenly changes. Really hope that drones or unmanned aerial vehicles can can help with that.
0: Africa, we've seen delivery of blood and supplies to different communities through drones that otherwise is just inaccessible. Yeah, so some really interesting things. And so far we've talked about things that I think a lot of citizens know about. I mean, FirstNet is a conversation that we see a lot in public safety, but citizens are asking questions, even if they're not familiar with the public safety tech, about drones, about body cameras, about things like that. As you go out into the community, what questions do you hear most often from citizens who maybe don't have as direct connection to the public safety, but they still have questions about it. They want to know how it's affecting them.
1: So when I talk to citizens, unfortunately, a lot of residents of communities think that first responders have a lot more technology than they do. And that's Mm. partially based on TV shows that you see like CSI. (laughs) I think a lot of citizens and residents don't understand that in many cases, the technology in their homes or in their hands is more advanced than that which first responders have. But I think there's a real potential transformative effect, not necessarily in the urgent matters like the crime in progress or the fire or the heart attack, But in things like uh, crime investigation, where police officers can come to homes, investigate a crime, and with smartphones or with other devices can actually gather better data, fingerprints, for example, or better data, blood samples from a criminal who might have gone into the home and left blood on a a window pane, for example, Mm -hmm. and actually analyze that much more rapidly, Um, search of databases, like automatically searching for stolen property immediately while the police officer is investigating the crime in a home. So I think there's a lot of potential for FirstNet and for some of the apps to help with the leg work, detective work, you know, the the gumshoe we used to call it, detective work, <laughs> and improving that. But there's also some, some potential for apps where you might be able to upload a diagram of your home and where the smoke detectors and fire alarms are in your home and maybe where the people are that in your home, like My invalid mother typically lives in the back bedroom. So if there's an incident, whether it be emergency medical or a fire, that information would be available to first responders.
0: And that's to the point about apps that are certified from some third party so that we know that they're safe. If that, it's that kind of app, I can see that I would be willing to upload a diagram of my home and say, this is the bedroom where my son sleeps. If there's a fire, this is where you go first.
1: Exactly. But you want to make sure that's safe and secure. Exactly. That, that it's locked down so only a first responder can see it.
0: Exactly. That's such a tension. I would uh, do anything to make sure that that information is, is with the firefighters if there was ever a fire at my home but I would want to make sure that that information couldn't get anywhere else. And so navigating that security is certainly something that we talk about a lot on the podcast, as you can imagine. Exactly. So to the point about citizens imagining often tech that maybe isn't there for public safety professionals, I'm sure that can create a challenge for public safety professionals who are doing all they can, but what we imagine in CSI isn't necessarily the, the reality. What are some misconceptions that citizens have Um, about public safety? Or as someone with such a rich background in in public safety, what are things that you would want citizens like me to know who are curious about this space, want to do what we can to advocate for tech and resources to be allocated to it, but we don't have a direct tie to it?
1: Well, one of the things I think is, again, for mayors, uh, city council members, county commissioners, and other elected officials need to understand the importance of putting tools like smartphones or tablet computers in the hands of their first responders. We take these for granted. 85% or 90% of American adults carry smartphones. Many companies issue devices to um, their salespeople, for example, or their delivery force, for example, for UPS or FedEx. But yet many communities have not allocated the resources to give such devices whether it be body-worn video or, or body-worn sensors or smartphones or, or iPads to their first responders. So I think residents understanding this and and asking their elected officials to give really basic tools like a smartphone to first responders is important.
0: That makes sense. And that's something that as citizens we can advocate for and, and ask our elected officials about so that they know that we care about it. Certainly it's something that benefits everyone that these public safety professionals have the resources that they need in order to operate. I can't imagine doing the job that I do without my smartphone and I don't save lives. <laughs>
1: so <laughs> It's also amazing how innovative police officers and firefighters and, and medics are once they get a device like that or with their personal device, the apps and the maps and the, the unique capabilities that they develop and, and ideas that improve their service to citizens
0: I love that you mentioned maps I have to do a quick shout out to my my brother-in-law Cody Walton is a firefighter in Durham and he amazes me that he knows the roads so well he challenges himself to just drive all the time and know all the roads I've lived in Raleigh for a very long time and still use Google Maps an embarrassing amount because i am so used to it but he i think the perspective that he has is he doesn't want to be relying on anything that could go down and so he wants someone to be able to make a call and name a street and for him to know how to get there without any technology we like these innovations we want more tech in the hands of our first responders but the danger is what if what if they go down so at what level do first responders prepare and make sure that they can operate without this tech
1: Boy, another great point, uh, Sarah. I talk a lot about the technology and the technology that's available to first responders, but when it gets down to it, we still depend on the knowledge of that human being who is a medic or is a firefighter or is a police officer. We depend upon them, the the medic, for example, to have excellent skills in emergency medicine um, that they're able to quickly diagnose the issue that someone might have, especially if they're unconscious without necessarily having the technology available. That is a police officer, for example, that they're skilled in dealing with crime and dealing with compassionately with victims and, and, and witnesses and in having the investigative skills to do that. So technology is great, but it still we depend on those human beings and, and their personal knowledge of their job and their experience in, in order to be able to carry it out.
0: Well, that seems like a natural place for us to give a big shout out and thank you to all the first responders and their families who might be listening especially since we we talked about how so many especially in rural communities are volunteers is there anything that citizens can do we talked earlier about how to advocate for first responders in general and for the industry but Anything in general you would want citizens to know or remember as we interact with the first responders in our daily lives?
1: There are several suggestions. One is many communities have a Citizens Police Academy or Citizens Fire Academy where you can go as a regular resident of the town to learn uh, what police officers do or what firefighters do and how you can better help with that. Uh, Certainly the Red Cross and other organizations, you can become CPR trained. There are apps like PulsePoint. So if there's an issue... Pulse point, you said? Pulse point, yeah. If there's a uh, heart attack, for example, you might have CPR training. The heart attack might be in the restaurant right next to you. And we're seeing where there are citizen saves that are coming in now, whether they be physicians or or, or regular citizens who have first aid training. And then a neighborhood watch. Many Mm -hmm. citizens or communities have a block watch or a neighborhood watch where you can become a member of that neighborhood watch and, and help your police officers, or help law enforcement. So those are three very pretty specific suggestions where you can get involved because really you as a citizen or a resident, you're on the front line uh, of protecting your community.
0: So in the space that you're in, I imagine that you have to be pretty up to date on the tech and what's new. How do you stay informed?
1: So I've got a news feed that I curate myself, uh, which has about a hundred different uh, news feeds in it. Uh, and I use, to just be honest, Feedly and Newsify. Feedly is the web-based and Newsify is the, the app. And then I use Twitter. So it's <laughs> You at- are very active on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's at sign Bill Schreier is my Twitter uh, handle. And when I see interesting news items, particularly when they relate to first responders or FirstNet, I'll tweet them. But you, you have to read 10 to 15 different news items before I, I tweet any single thing. So between the looking at the news feeds and the news items and then tweeting the most interesting ones at, at sign Bill Schreier. Uh, that's how I stay up done technology.
0: When I follow you on Twitter, um, I appreciate all the news updates. The other thing I, so I saw you speak at IOT evolution with chief Lear. I think it was
1: chief Ray Lear of, uh, former deputy chief of the Baltimore Fire Department.
0: That's right. And you know it was funny because I saw you two speak there, but you are both very active on Twitter and often have conversations. And I just love that because, of course, he's very East Coast, you're very West Coast, and he was fire. Your background is a police officer, but you do such a great job of keeping up that conversation.
1: Ray Lair is a great friend. And I've got to actually have a number of I call them Twitter, Twitter buddies. I meet people <laughs> on Twitter and then uh, actually see them at a conference and, and meet them face-to-face after meeting them on Twitter.
0: And so Chief Lear is a great example of someone that I know is within your network and one of the innovators that you work with. He's also great to follow on Twitter. Uh, you spend half your time on the road talking to people. Who out there is just doing great work that we should know
1: about? So one of the things I've done on Twitter is I've got six lists, including a list of FirstNet tweeters, state and local government CIO tweeters, and smart city tweeters. So those lists, which are available if you sign up for Twitter, you can actually go to those lists, and those are the people that I consider innovators. Those are the people that I, uh, I think are so important to the work that we're doing that I actually add them to the list, and I actually follow them also, to get information and the latest developments in technology. I see.
0: Okay, so I'm on your Twitter feed here, and I see that you have, oh, it looks like you have seven lists. So there's Twitter has blue check verified, but you can also have Bill Schreier verified. I like it. <laughs> so I see here you've got list of smart cities, police tech, uh, FirstNet, Spox, all kinds of stuff. This is great.
1: Exactly. And and these, again, are people that I think are are, are leading the way in terms of um, uh, recognizing what needs to be done for smart cities uh, as well as for uh, first responder technology.
0: And when someone like you who meets people all over the, the country and talks about these issues, it's it's nice to see that you're collecting little groups that the rest of us can follow and look into to learn more. Exactly. Well, I want to say thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure hearing a little bit more about your background and your current role. And I know we're going to continue to hear more from you and and about the great things that are coming out of your role in your space. So really looking forward to that. What's the best way to stay in touch and to follow what's going on?
1: So firstnet.gov is the website. And we actually have a blog on firstnet.gov where you can see the latest of what's going on. And my personal contact information, if people want it, is bill.schreier, S-C-H-R-I-E-R, at firstnet.gov.
0: You know, I don't think we've ever had anyone share their email on the podcast before. That's very kind of you. (laughs) Um, But I have to say, sitting next to you in the podcast, I can tell it's just you're uh, very open and willing to share and collaborate. So thank you, and I really appreciate that you're in the role that you're in. It sounds like it's going to be a big benefit for all of us.
1: You're welcome. And thank you for allowing me to be on the podcast.
0: And a huge thank you to our listeners. Riot Underground would not be here without you. So thank you so much. And of course, make sure you're subscribed. If you loved this episode with the legendary Bill Schreier as much as we did, we know that you won't want to miss what's coming next. So don't miss it. Subscribe today. See you in the next one. Hey, y'all. Caroline Griffin here, dropping in to say thanks for listening. And if you have any questions for Riot, send me a note. You can reach me at caroline at ncriot.org. This Riot Underground podcast is created and produced by Riot Studios with music by Scott Jackson. Riot is a nonprofit focused on economic development through the Internet of Things, or IoT. We produce events, conferences, and educational courses around the world. And we run an early stage startup accelerator out of Riot Labs in Raleigh, North Carolina. Our nonprofit also operates a wireless test and certification facility under the Wireless Research Center brand. Learn how to engage by visiting us at ncriot.org.